In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Uh, we are now joined by Rebecca Townsend. She is the G- the Chief Executive Officer at the Vermont Electric Co-op, headquartered in Johnson. Rebecca Town is VEC's um, Chief Executive. She has been with VEC for about five years and has over two decades of experience in Vermont's utility sector. Uh, Rebecca began her career with Green Mountain Power, serving in various leadership roles for about 12 years, and then spent four years at Vermont Gas Systems, leading organizational strategy, and then landed at VEC. Um, Rebecca, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Good morning. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Supplying electricity in Vermont is a challenging job, to say the least, but it is even more difficult in the winter when the weather is harsher, like now, for example. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, How has it been going uh, this winter? I know you had some outages that you have uh, then brought uh, people back online, but in various parts of the state, this is a tough nut to crack. Yeah, for sure, and we do. We still have a handful of folks out from this very wet, heavy storm that hit, um, started uh, early Monday morning, and uh, sort of a repeat of last Sunday morning where we got the same thing, just very, like, cement, uh, very wet, heavy snow, and it takes a lot of things down, trees down, wires down, poles down. Um, And our teams do what uh, we've been doing for many, many years, which is – answer the phones, get the line workers out in the field, and and have a whole mechanism for getting power restored as quickly as possible. And as you point out, it has been happening more frequently than usual. And in particular, our climatologists tell us that this time of year is particularly tricky. And also in the spring when you're more susceptible for snow, but it's not cold enough to be um, to be the light, fluffy snow, you're really getting it um, as a very heavy, very wet mix, and that's what starts to weigh things down. Yeah, the uh, the texture of the snow, the moisture content um, seems to be, you know, the big issue when when uh, uh, when um, we're talking about weight on power exposed power lines, right? Absolutely. Just a a few degrees can make a difference between ice or wet, heavy snow, and those are the times we really watch when it's hovering right around that 30 to 34 in there. Um, and, uh, and, and it can be different in various parts of the state as well. So depending on elevation and depending on where in that temperature range the precipitation falls, you can see different impacts. We've seen um, a lot in southern Vermont lately, and, and these two past storms have really hit the eastern side of the Green Mountains much more heavily than the western side. Um, do you have uh, an issue with... Uh, um, Power lines that are now uh, also uh, starting to accommodate um, uh, Internet uh, capacity. 
Well, we do we do a lot of work supporting broadband deployment, uh, which is really about making sure that the pole infrastructure we have is sufficiently strong enough and tall enough to be able to also carry broadband. And the other way that that deployment is important to us is more and more we are starting to use devices out in the field. Uh, so we already have fiber to our substations, but really in our members' households that connect to the Internet via fiber, and we're able to use those devices to help manage some of our grid impacts around particularly peak load management, for example. I see um, a lot of activity on uh, polls around Fairfax, for example, um, and uh, do, does it surprise you at all that uh, that there is this much happening or was it all part of the schedule that was out in front of you? Well, certainly from a broadband deployment perspective, we work very closely with uh, the folks who are putting up broadband, and we have a whole make-ready process, and they send in applications, and they try to forecast for us as much as possible where their expansion plans are so that we can be ready to make those changes as soon as they're ready um, to put that in place. So, uh, and broadband deployment, as soon as we knew that there was starting to be more CUDs formed and more funding available, available both in the state and at the federal level, we knew that deployment would really start to pick up. So, And it has. We're quite busy, among other things, also supporting Make Ready for broadband deployment, which is a real benefit uh, to our community. So we're happy to be part of that. Okay. Uh, Guy from Berlin is on the phone. Um Guy, what's your question for Rebecca Townsend? So I gather Green Mountain Power has got this outage-free plan where they're going to be burying the uh, burying the power lines and, uh, and otherwise sort of strengthening enough power lines to keep outages from happening. Uh, does VEC? I know you guys are more spread out. You're more rural. Uh, do you are you thinking that way too? Yeah, we are. Great question. And absolutely, the the core pinnings of Green Mountain Power's plan are really around making the physical infrastructure more resilient. And there's more there's more pieces to that, but but that is the foundation. And we are focused on exactly that same thing. And not only to make sure that we are building to be able to support increased uh, capacity, meaning we expect more load over the next 20 to 30 years from electric vehicles and heat pumps, but also to make sure that at the same time we're investing in infrastructure that is more reliable and more resilient. So it not only goes out less, which is the reliability, but then it's resilient, meaning when it does go out, we're able to get it back on faster. And those same strategies around undergrounding and being thoughtful about where we construct um, the type of wire that we're using, a close-arm construction um, for three-phase, those types of strategies absolutely are also in our toolbox and also in our expectations for moving forward. Uh, Rebecca, is it a lot more uh, uh, expensive to bury a power line as opposed to stringing it up on a pole? It is more expensive, and depending on a lot of factors, it's somewhere between two and a half, three and a half um, percent more expensive. So definitely more expensive. If you take into account um, where you are and the need to trim the trees and then potentially put that wire back up again if and when it falls down due to the more and more frequent storms, 
you start to gnaw into that cost difference because that maintenance cost of um, effectively sort of rebuilding and maintaining it over time becomes more expensive. So um, for some, uh, it can be it can be a really cost-effective strategy to underground, even though that initial price tag is more expensive. Does moisture get to be a problem in underground, uh, you know, where, where you've laid it underground? Um, sure. Moisture can be a problem. And what, really what that does is it can get in and, and uh, you know, the, the cables are made out of um, metal and they're often – um, you know, we try to protect them with conduit and, and uh, wrapping in that. But, but certainly moisture can be a problem. Frost heaves can be a problem where they, you know, really sort of move around what's underground. But there are ways um, to really mitigate those and make that less of an issue. It's just something you have to be thoughtful of when you're constructing it. Hmm. Um, I uh, remember one neighborhood I used to live in, uh, they, uh, there had been underground power lines there for a long time. And when, it's, when it came time to replace them, when they looked at it, um, uh, it was reported to me that the, what, had, what had been the you know, me- metal power line was powder. Does that, yeah. <laughs> does that actually happen? Yeah, so the original undergrounds that were put in are what we call direct buried, which means they dug a ditch and they put in some metal wire and then they covered it back over. And so absolutely now, you know, 40, 50 years later, you're starting to see that those just, when they go, it can be um, quite a process to both determine the problem and then to fix um, because when we put it in, they weren't really thinking 40 years ahead of time into what that might look like. Wow. And, and also didn't have a way to predict. It seemed at that point like that was going to be a great solution. So now what we do is put in conduit so that there is, um, they're in a, you know, effectively a plastic a PVC pipe. Um, and that allows not only protects the wire better from the elements, but also makes it easier to replace and to um, work on if there's issues. Right. It would, would think it would last longer. You wouldn't have to replace yeah, it as often, yeah. right? Yeah. Rebecca, everything about generating and distributing electricity is going to be expensive. Uh, you got a, you've got a rate increase request into the state regulating body of just over 8%. Um, certainly you have employees who work hard and need raises, especially in this uh, inflationary environment. What else is going to be part of that request? So, um, yeah, uh, it, it's really uh, a, a few pieces that put together our rate request. Power supply costs and transmission is always a huge piece of that, and the environment we're in, you mentioned, it's it's taking more money to, um, you know, to generate and to transmit that power. And, and so we're seeing that reflected in those power supply and transmission costs, which is over 50% of our budget. So that's a huge driver when we start to see what the markets are doing. We have contracts that are great contracts um, with all kinds of uh, mostly renewable energy providers, but they go up year over year. And then transmission costs are a regional system, so we get a lot of those costs based on what the whole region is doing. And the labor and insurance costs, just like everyone else, we're experiencing labor and insurance costs. Um, and then I would say the third driver is the cost no one really likes to um, necessarily talk about, but they are really big drivers, and they've been changing a lot, which is um, interest rates and property taxes, so some of the behind-the-scenes pieces of, of operating a business. 
Um, so those are those are the big pieces, and I think we are not an outlier in seeing a lot of those costs going up. Um, and sometimes our the way our rate structure works, that we raise rates on an annual basis, we're we're a little behind um, absorbing some of those costs into our cost structure. Uh, is there um, a program for uh, people who uh, are? Uh, low income or moderate income that would um, uh, ameliorate some of that rate increase? So we are approach, we're not not for profit. So um, really everything that we do and we are, despite the, the cost increase, we're very scrappy with our budget. So we are very thoughtful about the fact that every dollar we spend is our members' money and that we know a lot of our folks have a very high energy burden. So the Vermont Energy Burden Report shows a lot of towns in our service territory um, have uh, higher than uh, average energy burden for Vermont. So we, the way we think about it actually is that the way we can help all of our members, uh, knowing a lot of them are in fixed on fixed income is just by keeping our rates as low as possible. And when you're seeing uh, increases more than we've been used to in the past, I know it doesn't always feel like um, that is uh, uh, affordable because it's going up just like everything else. And also we work hard to mitigate that as much as we can. We're pretty successful with making it less of an increase than um, than some of the other cost drivers that we're seeing by mitigating in, uh, in other ways around uh, implementing cost-saving endeavors like um, reducing our peak through storage and things like that. Mary uh, from Randolph Center is on the line. Uh, Mary, what is your question for Rebecca Townsend of the Vermont Electric Co-op? Yes, good morning. Good morning, Rebecca. Um, I just had a thought. Um, is there any way as a co-op that um, uh, the users could be maybe incentivized and then rewarded for really controlling the use of their electric. I mean, we all go by the homes that are lit up like a Christmas tree, well, especially this time of year, but, you know, during other times of the year, they've got the garage lights on, the house lights on, the spotlights on, and every room in the house is lit. Um, those of us that are pretty conservative, I mean, my bill usually runs about $40. Granted, I have a small home and I live alone, but I think a little incentive might be, uh, you know, a nice little rebate at the end of the year on having your having your uh, electric bill drop. Yeah. Well, um, thanks for the question, Mary, and the suggestion. And uh, a $40 electric bill is, is a, a very um, judicious user of energy, for sure. Uh, we have a couple ways that we do that. First is that um, the way that our bills work is the first 100 kilowatt hours that you use um, is at a much lower rate than the additional ones. So for people who are low users of electricity, their average rate, once you blend it all in, is much lower because they're really taking advantage of that first 100 kW. We also know that people, um, based on data, we've seen that people who have a um, less of an energy burden, so an energy burden is percentage of their household income they spend on energy, they tend to use more. So I'm not sure how much incentive we can build. But we do also have a time of use rate that allows people to um, be able to take advantage of a lower cost when uh, the market prices are lower and then a higher cost when there are peak times when we're sort of overall using more electricity. 
Um, our big programs have been focused in on incentivizing um, new devices and having people use those differently, particularly electric vehicles, because electric vehicles is, um, if you buy an electric vehicle, it's the largest uh, uh, appliance basically you'll have in your home in terms of a use perspective. So we uh, really make sure to incentivize and, and more specifically uh, encourage people to let us manage those so they're not using those during peak times and that's what uh, sort of helps the whole system is by not using it when power is um, most scarce. Interesting, interesting. Um, I was going to ask you uh, how that was going to figure in uh, as more and more people uh, get uh, electric vehicles that they are charging at home, um, people will compare it to what they might have paid for gas for an equivalent amount of gasoline. Um, is, do you do you believe that it will still be cheaper on average for the for the person out there who gets an electric vehicle? Yes, absolutely. And uh, there's, if you go to Drive Electric Vermont, you can run some numbers and see exactly for each model of vehicle how that compares. But yes, the the um, the fuel, so to speak, is cheaper when you're using electricity than it is for, for gasoline uh, when you transition to electric. And particularly if you take advantage of us managing a charger and um, add that incentive to your bill, uh, it adds. It definitely is um, is helpful from a cost perspective. Um, do you have a, a sense of what the growth is like for uh, people who want to put in those installs? Oh, for a specific electric vehicle? Yeah, or 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 any. I mean. Um... Uh, you know, because all of the brands have their own different, right? Their right, own different right. one. They're there's, different. There's, yeah. there's, there's yeah. no. Uh, although I guess there's been some discussion about having a, a, a unified um, uh, connecting uh, uh, device to that you actually attach to the car. Um, but it is a a little um, a little dicey in terms of how that would how that would work. Um, and, and how do how do they get installed? Uh, does does the co-op do it? Does the does the car dealer do it? Who does that? So right now, when you get an electric vehicle, um, and it does, it varies dramatically by the type of vehicle and whether it's plug-in hybrid or a truck or what that looks like. Um, but you give us a call or go on our website, and we give an incentive for the purchase of an electric vehicle, both new and used, and also we'll give you a free um, EV charger if you agree to let us manage that charger and not allow charging during peak times. So, and at that same time, we can um, take a look at your transformer and make sure that the transformer is set up to support that additional load. In terms of the house setup, that's really work that an, an inside electrician would do, so not, not our folks who are experts at the, the power grid. And you can get an electrician to help you install that, and they can make sure and hook that up. It's usually most people have it um, hooked up to a 220-volt outlet, so similar to like your dryer, um, for example, and, you, and a lot of people need to have that uh, circuit run to the garage or somewhere where you would be using that charger. So it is a little bit of a setup, and it's different than a gas vehicle. 
And I will tell you, once you have it, because I have an electric vehicle, uh, that convenience of being able to fuel your vehicle overnight while you're sleeping and just plug it in when you get home versus stopping at the gas station uh, is pretty sweet. Um, And from a grid perspective, because you asked about growth, we are anticipating over the next 20 years we'll have um, about 30% growth of our electrical load primarily due to electric vehicles, but also due to the growth of heat pumps and electrification of heating. I was just going to ask you about uh, heat pumps. Um, uh, uh, My wife and I just had one put in in our home, um, and uh, it's wonderful. Um, It seems to be very efficient, but I haven't gotten my first bill yet, so I don't know exactly what the impact is going to be. But uh, what's your sense of the efficiency of those devices for heating a home? Yeah, so we hear a lot from members that they love their heat pumps, and not just for heating, but also it's got the air conditioning mode. um, And for a well-insulated home, they can be sufficient Um, For homes that are not as well insulated, which is definitely some Vermont housing stock, I think they are not necessarily a full replacement for the full heating system. And we know a lot of people who, um, again, it's not installations we do, but we have talked to so many experienced installers who are happy to have that conversation with members about their specific house and what applications might work for them in that setup and where a heat pump can be a really good application. Is there going to be uh, an ins- an, more of an incentive beyond the rebates, which can be, I don't know, 250, 350 bucks, something like that? Would there be, is, is there anything like a, a credit on a bill for getting a heat pump? So right now, Efficiency Vermont manages the statewide heat pump rebates. So connecting with Efficiency Vermont, and you get you get that um, all of the rebates that are available through the Efficiency Vermont deal, and there are also federal rebates now that show up as tax credits um, that are uh, implemented as part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And then hopefully in 2024, there's a whole process with the state and the federal government, but there's going to be additional rebate allocations um, for um, particularly low-income folks, I think maybe moderate income as well, that is going to be facilitated through a still-to-be-determined process. Um, So in 2024, we're expecting even more potential rebates through sort of lots of those different mechanisms. Um, We just have about a minute or so, a minute and a half or so left. Um, I did want to mention, though, I took um, the the co-op's webinar um, a few weeks ago and really was fascinated by by these residential batteries um, as a means of being able to rely more on sustainable energy. Uh, Do I have that right? Yeah, absolutely. So distributed storage, just like distributed power generation, um, is a really great way to be able to think about um, not just managing these uh, uh, additional loads, but also being able eventually to balance intermittent renewable energy. So we know as you move to renewables, a lot of renewables rely on their power source, which is the sun or the wind, which is not as consistent. Uh, And so what that means is um, our system, which always has been, you just you use whatever you want, and our job is to make the you know the generation fleet respond to that. But with intermittent, you don't have as much control over the generation fleet, and so it's really going to be about more managing some of the pieces out um, 
out on the lines. So that I already mentioned the vehicle chargers, but then storage can help you take solar, for example, and instead of using it at three o'clock in the afternoon when there's a ton of solar on the system and maybe not as much use, it can help you move it to later in the day. Um, and we're still figuring out how some of that works, um, but theoretically, um, that's the that's the hope of being able to uh, integrate more uh, renewable energy in a very cost-effective way. All right. Rebecca Town is our guest uh, from Vermont Electric Co-op. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm your Tuesday host, Brad Wright. We have been talking about Social Security and Medicare. We have been talking about the Israeli-Palestinian and Hamas conflict. We have even been speaking to uh, uh, Rebecca Town from the Vermont Electric Co-op. Um, about all things electric power and outages and rate increases and uh, the like. Uh, it is now time to have a little fun. Um, uh, joining us now is Margot Harrison, the associate editor at Seven Days, and she writes reviews for movies that you can see in our area. Margot, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you. Um, before we get into what you've reviewed recently, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your general approach to a film, what you value, what you don't value when you consider how to um, uh, evaluate whether it's a good one or, or that people should go see or not. Yeah, well, I count how many times I roll my eyes while I'm watching it. <laughs> I, I don't really count, but but that's I do pay attention to things like that. Um, what I really care about in a movie are story and characters. Is it a strong story? Do we feel invested in the characters and what they're doing and what they're struggling with? That's always number one for me. I think some critics focus much more on visuals. I do care about visuals. I mean, if it's a beautiful movie, that certainly influences my opinion, but it's not the only thing that I care about. Um, do you uh, do you think that um, uh, the visual quality is can can kind of overwhelm uh, a film? Uh, if, if there's if there's a really good story to be told there and it almost doesn't come through. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example of something like that. That it seems rare, but I mean, I think usually it's more common to see filmmakers using, using beautiful videos or beautiful, beautiful visual visuals to cover up for a story that is not strong enough. I mean, for me, like the ideal movie would have a really strong story and strong visuals and they would kind of support each other. Yeah, yeah. I was I was one one uh one that came to mind that I uh I'm I'm having trouble remembering the title of uh took it was a story about um a sexual assault that took place on an Indian reservation and uh the story goes about uh f trying to find, you know, who the who the uh, perpetrator was, but the stunning scenery on this Indian reservation in Wyoming was was so uh, so striking that it almost overwhelmed the story itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Wind River is. Yeah, Wind Wind River. I think that was it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I definitely know what you mean. Um, and that that can be an issue. I mean, if it's a story that needs to be told in a sort of grittier way, um, maybe having those sweeping landscapes doesn't really serve the story. Yeah, yeah, it could be. And yet it was beautiful. It was it was it was quite captivating, I, I have to say. So, um, uh, Margot, what are the films that you've reviewed that you've reviewed recently and, and what do you think about them? Um, well, this week, it hasn't come out yet, but I reviewed Dream Scenario, which is a movie starring everybody's favorite, Nicolas Cage. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's a movie with a really good premise. It's about a, a guy who starts randomly showing up in other people's dreams, not just people he knows, but strangers all over the world. It's well, kind of like he's going viral, but without the Internet, he's going viral in the collective unconscious. Really? So, so wow. So it, it, it sounds a little bit like Inception, where um, in that case, uh, dreams and and jumping into somebody's dream was was a form of industrial espionage. And yet right. here we have we here we have something um, that's a little different than that. Yeah, and yeah, it, it actually gets a tiny bit more like Inception toward the end. But this is, I mean, Inception was like a big blockbuster action movie. This is a way more sort of quiet, um, basically just a movie with with characters talking, um, kind of. And it's it has a sort of mild humor, kind of like Woody Allen, kind of like wry observational humor. Um, and I, I liked it, but I felt like it didn't really fulfill the promise of its premise, ultimately. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Um uh, what about, uh, so I, the previous week, I think you, uh, reviewed the holdovers. Um, yeah, salt, salt burn. And then before that, the holdovers and the holdovers is really interesting. I think, um, if, if for older people who are kind of tired of superhero movies and tired of action, this movie could be really attractive. It's set in 1970 and it reminds you of movies from the early seventies. Um, I mean, I was I was alive during that time, and I kind of remember movies were slower, movies were more focused on people, people's problems, and this movie, directed by Alexander Payne, really captures that. Um, I enjoyed it. I mean, I had a few issues with it. It's a little bit long. It's a little corny in places, but there's a really good performance by Paul Giamatti, and it really kind of makes you care about these characters. Did anything surprise you about uh, the holdovers? Um, that's a good – it wasn't that – I think what surprised me was that I kept expecting it to be cornier than it ultimately was. I mean, it kept kind of going right to the verge of being really kind of like sentimental, and then it would pull back, which I appreciated because – I mean, sentimental sort of tearjerker movies are a, a genre, but it's not really my thing. I'm more of like a horror movie person. <laughs> a horror movie person. Okay. All right. That is uh, is quite something. Um, uh, I, I don't know why, but I have avoided them uh, for a long time. I haven't watched many uh um, although I have to say one one that, that, that sort of comes to mind is this remake 
of the fall of the house of usher that is currently um on netflix and i uh was watching uh part of it last night and some of it actually is pretty horrifying now this is based <laughs> this is based on um edgar allan poe's um uh, uh uh, gosh, it was a novel, I think, that was, you know, written in the 19th century. So it's obviously a much more modern adaptation that almost looks like it. In, it's it's a takeoff on the Sackler family. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but um, uh, have you seen any of this? I have. I've seen some of it. I think. Um, yeah, I watched about maybe a third or a half of it. Um, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's sort of like half horror, half satire, and it's playing so fast and loose with the source material. I mean, the source material is just a really short story about this doomed family that the Usher family, and in this miniseries by Mike Flanagan, it becomes this whole elaborate thing, um, about all the, the different ways that these family members die. And it draws on a lot of other post stories, too. So it's kind of like Poe fan fiction in a way. It's like all these little Poe motifs stuck in there. Right. Um, the gold bug was part of it, right? Yeah, right. But like the gold bug and I think the mask of the red death, all these different Poe stories. I, huh. I didn't, I didn't love it. I, I like, I like the director or the creator. Um, he has another thing on, on Netflix called midnight mass that I really liked a lot. Ah, okay. Midnight Mad. That's and that's kind of like a vampire story. It's ah. like a Stephen King type thing. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, uh, we are talking about movies with uh, Margot Harrison of Seven Days. Um, if you would like to ask Margot a question, please feel free to give us a call. You can do so at 802-244-1777. 244-1777. Um, and uh, we are talking about movies with Margot. Um, one of the uh, most important things about a film, in my opinion, is context, especially when there's a period of history that is being visited. I went with a buddy to see Napoleon over the weekend, and this is not a film that you can apply, you know, today's moral standards to, certainly. There's a lot to process if you don't know much about the French Revolution, which is where the film begins, and it is a little rough around the edges, to put it mildly, especially at the beginning, but... Um, um, but that's how things were back then. Um, now, you, in our previous conversation, you hadn't seen Napoleon yet. But what do you think about um, the uh, so the his, putting things in historical context when you're doing a period piece? Clearer to the to the audience what the historical context is. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, I mean, it seems like that's always a challenge because modern people are always going to see the the past through, through our own lens. Um, I mean, I thought about that when I was seeing this movie Priscilla, which is about Elvis and Priscilla Presley and how they met. Um, and she was 14 years old when they met. And I think nowadays that is pretty shocking. You know, he was in his 20s, um, but maybe not quite so much back then. So you kind of have to balance that, um, and you you know there's a lot of a lot of baggage tied to that whole story too. Oh yeah, so, oh yeah, you know. yes, there sure is because she was very young, a high school student, right? So, 
Um, right. Right. And then, you know, there Elvis obviously has a huge fandom that doesn't want to hear doesn't want to hear anything bad about him. So, um, yeah, I think that the filmmaker really had to kind of walk a fine line there. But I thought she did a good job. That I keep hearing um, uh, good reviews about that film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, I mean it's it's kind of claustrophobic because she spends all her time waiting for Elvis. But <laughs> but I thought it was interesting. All right, all right. Um, Margot, we have a caller. Wade from Corinth, Vermont, is on the line. Wade, what's your question? Well, not so much a question, just just a chat. I wasn't sure where a call would, would fit in until Margot, and you just said her names. I didn't catch it at the beginning of the show, um, where it would fit in until she said she was a horror film fan. And, of course, Margot, you're probably aware of the town of East Corinth. Well, Beetlejuice, nope, yeah. <laughs> Beetlejuice, right. And so we, as residents of the village here, whether you'd consider it a, a curse or um, or a privilege, uh, we ate, lived, and breathed uh, in a movie set for a couple of months, and then final shooting was a couple of days in July. Um, so it's interesting to see um, that they've put out that Tim Burton and, of course, Michael Keaton is, was uh, on board with it too, that they're going to stick with um, claymation, puppeteering, stop action, and all those kind of quirky special effects which made the first movie you know, what it was and, and the, the fame it is now. That's great. I did not know that. But, I mean, instead oh, yeah. of using computer-generated well, we imagery, that's... Yeah, yeah we were fortunate enough, and, and I even asked the questions. You know, we met some of the production crews and, and construction crews of the sets. They completely came and reconstructed uh, all the, the, the fake buildings that were here in, in Corinth when they did the movie back in 87. And, um, they, you know, I said, well, geez, wouldn't, couldn't you just sit in a studio? You know, they were over in London in a state-of-the-art, highest-tech studio in the world, I said, isn't it just easier to CGI or, or green screen the actors in and just not have to come back here? And he says, he actually, I was surprised. He said, absolutely not. To cut and paste a new actor or actress or character into those old scenes from 35 years ago is so painstakingly intensive and expensive. It was actually cheaper to come to Vermont and do this thing all over again, live action. Wow. I, that's amazing. And I'm so glad that they did that, though, because we really don't, for the most part, have movies shot in Vermont anymore, at least not big budget movies. So Beetlejuice 2 is a real exception. Yeah, they, and, they thought it was probably costing you know, mil- millions of dollars in lost tax you know, incentives um, where they could have done it somewhere else, even in another country. Uh, much like the uh, Wednesday, Tim Burton and and uh, and one of our local actors, Luis Guzman, is, is uh, from here. And they were over in boy, where was it? You know, East Romania. Europe, anyway, yeah, Romania, Croatia, somewhere. Yeah, and uh, they were shooting that over there. And they all the cars had Vermont plates, and it was Jericho, Vermont, and it was quite a hoot. <laughs> and here he lives right over here. I won't just quiz away everybody else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, yeah it was you know funny. we we had thousands upon thousands of tourists come to see these sets, which is very unusual for a movie set to be that open uh, to the public. And they were very gracious and they were the greatest people in the world to deal with, no matter what you'd read on Facebook. (laughs) And uh, it was quite an experience. And and now they're gone. And it's like, they were never here. Oh, wow. I wish I had gotten over there while they were shooting. We did send a reporter, but, um, but I didn't have time to come myself. I am really excited to see the movie though, when it's done. Yeah. I guess they just wrapped uh, production after the, the Zag strikes and everything. 
and um, which also was interesting because they shot till quarter one in the morning on that second day and ended at 15 minutes before the strike started. Right. That was a, yeah, right, that right was amazing timing. They probably, they probably could have used another half day uh, to do just a few more odds and ends, and they were able to do some, you know, scene shots, location shots, drone work and stuff afterwards, but no live actors whatsoever. They hopped in there you know, their SUVs, and they were out of there at 12.45 a.m., and we didn't see them again for another three months. But what I've read is that uh, production has wrapped, and um, it's just going to the final cutting table, and the release is supposed to be Labor Day this year, this coming year, 24. That's really exciting, I think. It is. Uh, so you got, like you got to talk to some of the filmmakers while they were there? Filmmakers and, and uh, set production people, they were really the, the down-to-earth people that were just the greatest people in the world. They were helping out us here in the town. Um, we've, you know, we'll have some surprises over here in town over the next year or so. Um, you know, make a little mini you know, tourist uh, site here and some self-guided tours, and people have a lot of fun with it. We've seen thousands and thousands of people over this last summer, and you know, we usually see hundreds, but this year, of course, with the, the shooting, it was in the thousands of tourists that came through, and it was a it was a great boon for the local economy. You know, the stores, the campgrounds, and and just in general, restaurants um, like to build on that a little bit, and we'll we'll keep we'll keep everybody posted. That's great. Yeah, definitely keep us posted about that. Fantastic, Wade. Thank you uh, very much for your call. Appreciate it. Very, very informa- very, uh, very well informed about uh, about all the things that uh, were going on with that film in Corinth. Uh, that's fantastic. Um, you know, speaking, you know, and and Beetlejuice was kind of one of those different kind of films. Um, and and speaking of a, a different kind of film, um, what are your thoughts about these concert films that are coming out now, like Taylor Swift's Eras? Beyonce's uh, Renaissance. Um, are is is every big major group going to going to do their own f- concert film now? What do you think? Maybe. I mean, I would not be surprised because the Taylor Swift film made ninety five million dollars its first weekend. That is huge. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think it's like the rec- It's definitely the record for a concert film, and the Beyonce movie last weekend made $21 million, which is certainly quite respectable, too. And I think it was the the highest box office take that weekend. So clearly there's an audience for these movies. Yeah. Um, have you seen have you ever seen one? I, I have to confess, I have not seen one. Um, I just wonder how I mean, how well I mean, how good are they really? Do you have to have a different sound system for it? Would a theater have to do something like that? Not that I know of. Um, yeah, I haven't seen one of these movies, but I think what kind of the, the atmosphere is, is sort of an atmosphere of fandom. So you kind of have to be a fan of the artist. And I've heard that at the Taylor Swift people, that at the Taylor Swift movie, people are singing in the aisles, they're dancing. Um, so like you're, you're not, you're not supposed to be sitting quietly in your seat, just watching, you're allowed to participate. And it's kind of an experience for fans. So I think unless you're a fan, I'm not sure that it's really something for you. But I don't know because I haven't actually seen one. Okay. All right. Well, it sounds like uh, maybe one in our future uh, is if it may not be able to avoid them after after uh, after a certain amount of time. Um we we get just uh, getting back to the uh, the old sort of the horror uh, genre. Um, uh, I'm hearing uh, some interesting things about um, a new Godzilla movie. 
that's not exactly horror. It's almost kind of, um, uh, I don't know. Is that, is that an eye roller for you? Uh, a Godzilla movie? There's this one movie that's current, Godzilla minus one. Right. Yeah. I haven't read reviews of that or seen that yet, but it's, I mean, it's from Japan and it sounds interesting to me. Um, since the, the Japanese people, of course, originated the Godzilla genre. Um, and just like American filmmakers, they're always remaking their popular properties and doing new spins on them, just like we do with superheroes. You know, they do that with the kaiju, the giant monster genre that Godzilla belongs to, um, which I am really not an expert on, but I, I know people love it. And so I would be curious to know what new spin they're putting on that. Well, uh, my, from what I read, um, Godzilla minus one actually, um, has a kind of a, it's a World War II throwback where, uh, a Japanese pilot, uh, is, um, uh, you know, fighter pilot is somehow involved in all of this. And, um, and takes, uh, takes leave. Uh, he was, I guess, supposed to be a kamikaze pilot and said, you know what? This is not for me. And, uh, went off to, uh, Godzilla land, I guess. Um, it just sounds like you, you, you mentioned, you know, putting a new spin on it. This sounds like a, a completely new spin on, on the Godzilla, um, the Godzilla yeah. movie. Yeah, I would be interested to see that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, Godzilla has its roots with World War II and the atomic bomb and the, the sort of collective trauma for that. So this sounds like a really interesting direction to go in. Uh, I, who is Who goes to the Godzilla film? Is it a Godzilla uh, uh, fan specifically, or is it everybody? Um. I think a lot, I think there's a, a huge fandom for the, sort of these sort of giant monster movies. I mean, they're not all Godzilla, like Pacific Rim was another movie in that genre. Um, and it's kind of a subset of horror fans who are especially into that. Okay, okay. Um, uh, Margo, uh, I just want to say uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. We'd like to do this um, a little more often, if you're good with it, um, because uh, yeah. a discussion of movies and movie reviews uh, um, is a fun thing to do. I mean, it's interesting. I, I just, you know, I had been to a, a theater for the first time, I think, since the pandemic um, uh, last weekend, and it was uh, really kind of an interesting uh, thing uh, to do again. And it was just like it used to be, and yet at the same time, um, it was, it almost felt new just because of, you know, what we all went through with the pandemic. Uh, Margo right. Harrison, th thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we uh, very much appreciate it and uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me and have a great day. Absolutely, Margo. Thank you so much. Um, we are uh, just about out of time, but I do want to thank uh, my guests again, Dan Adcock from the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare. Uh, we talked about uh, Medicare open enrollment and uh, the uh, Social Security cost of living adjustment. Um, we also spoke with uh, Dr. Eva Pascal of the St. Michael's College Religious Studies Program about the um, uh, the massive, massive fight 
that is happening in Palestine and Gaza and Israel. Uh, Rebecca Town of the Vermont Electric Co-op, thank you so much. And, of course, our last guest, Margo Harrison. This is Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. I'm Brad Wright. Thanks for joining us and have a wonderful day.